Listen, I don't have much time, but do you feel like you're going out of your gourd? Are you, do you have the cabin fever? Have you run out of Netflix to watch? If, has the thought occurred, hey, you know what? I can make funny stuff. I've been watching TikTok. I've been watching all the social networks and seeing what kind of creativity is coming out. I could create that. Hey, you know what? I wish they made a podcast about this. Well, you know what? You can make your own podcast. Go to anchor.fm. Go to it, please, right now. Make your own podcast. It's the lazy person's way to make stuff. You can make little segments. Uh, you could put music on there, found sounds, babies laughing, neighbors throwing frisbees, uh, uh, your friends playing guitar. Ah, it's so good. Anchor.fm. Please get this and find me. Inspirato Projecto. Let's be friends. Okay? Anchor.fm. Oh, dude. Your accents just get worse and worse as they go on. <laughs> You're making me kind of laugh, but at the same time, I'm kind of going, no, no, stop now. No, stop now. Come on. Stop now. Anyway, this has been Andy's Funded Records and Radio saying, ha, 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 stop now. You're listening to Man Behind a Machine on Inspirato Projector Radio. I want to get you. I want to get you on record talking about this because I don't think I've heard about this movie. All right, let's see. So, okay, so Cat People. What what is the premise of Cat People? Uh, the premise of the original Cat People was that there was a, a woman whose family was cursed, and she would turn into a panther uh, at night. And there were other members of her family who did it as well, I believe. And she fell in love with a man, but he couldn't love her because she was a cat. And I I can't remember how it ended, but it was an RKO picture, and it was produced by Val Luton or Lawton. Uh, He made about five or six films in a row that are just fantastic in the 40s. I Walked with a Zombie... Uh, oh, so one... Cat People came out way back then. Yeah, 1942. Oh, okay. Was and it then... like a full moon kind of thing? Or was it? what was the circumstance that made him a cat? <sighs> it was just in her family. It was oh. in her blood. Um, there, there was one called The Leopard Man, uh, which was similar, except uh, uh, it had a man as the main character who turned into a cat. But, but in my generation, the only reason I saw the original was because I really liked the 1982 version of Cat People. With Malcolm McDowell, William Hurt, and Nastasha Kinski, which was written by Paul Schrader. And people complain about the film now. They think it's kind of the consensus that it's a terrible film. But as a child, it made great, a great impression on me. Why do they think it's terrible? Uh, because... Is it the writing, the special effects, it, it, the acting? It, the it flies off the rails. Uh, oh. It starts being very focused... And it ends up as one of those really unfocused stories. Paul Schrader, as a child, I believe his parents were... God, I'm, I'm going to give you all wrong information. They, they were Methodist. They, 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 were, they were some uh, sect that was fairly strict. Mm. And uh, Paul Schrader wanted to rebel when he was a child. He wasn't allowed to watch films. So when he watched a film like Cat People, his brain went into this fevered over-imagination. Oh. He, he wrote uh, Taxi Driver... Oh wow! Uh, he direct- so he made the remake of Cat People. He directed oh, and wow. wrote it. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And wow. it's it's really it, uh, psychosexual is the word for it. it. It's very very sexualized. Uh, whereas the original film, I think, got got to that point with a lot of poetry. Uh, so the original is a much better film. More like um, like uh, what what is it? what's that word that I'm thinking of? Uh, like. New, not nuances, but like innuendos, like that yes, kind of thing. Yes, it's very movie. subtle, uh, which they had to be, uh, both because of the Hayes Code and because of uh, special effects, certainly. Uh, the, the remake of Cat People is a scene where a character's arm is ripped off, uh, and it's quite graphic, so they could do things that they couldn't do back then. But uh, it doesn't necessarily make the film better. Sometimes it does, but not always. I like those films where they they allude to things. To me... It's more exciting to kind of imagine what might have happened between these two characters than, uh, than seeing it. And don't get me wrong; I, it's it's great to see movies where, you know, there's a lot of uh, 
TNA ju- jumping around, uh, <laughs> getting murdered by you know Jason or what have you. Um, but it's also cool. It's also like really, I like seeing like a Jimmy Stewart film, and, and you're like, there, there's something going on. You could tell that either they just finished doing something or they're about to go do something. But they're the way that they're talking about what may or may not happen. Right. There's something I like that. There's yeah. something really cool about that idea. Yeah, definitely. Uh, subtext in anything theater film uh, writing uh, well now that I'm I'm writing books uh, one thing that people argue about is how much to describe how Mm. much should the character describe how much should we give the audience and the correct answer more and more is becoming as little as possible Uh, one or two lines that are very evocative and then the audience is going to have a better imagination if, if you've really got a grasp on this character and what the character wants, then the audience will fill in the details for themselves mm. of exactly what it looks like. And if you give one well-timed detail, you can really kind of have an influence on how they see the character. But these guys who are writing, you know, two pages of, you know, dialogue, we, we call it an APB report, where he was just, mm. he was 5'6", had, uh, you know, shoulder-length hair. Uh, that is such a tricky thing too because like there's that on the one hand you're thinking like I want to bring these people into this moment and have them really see the details of like what's going on and the textures and and then there's that you know showing without telling so here there's that that like uh, I'm battling so what do you what do you ought to say about that well first Jamie Lee what do you have to say about that and then I want to hear your dream about the cats ask me the question I uh, I was looking something up oh geez oh no 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 well, the showing without telling showing aspect. Showing without telling. Yeah, yeah, like in in stuff. We're talking. He's. We're talking about, for instance, <clears throat> in some books, some people really spell out exactly what you see. He was just saying that now there's this idea of showing or talking as as little about what's going on as possible. And then I said, well, gosh, you know. But then also, we also want everybody to be there in that moment, feeling those textures, seeing those things. You know, and then, but then on top of that, there's that showing without telling aspect. So sure. I, I would I, like, and I, I, I caught the tail of Scott's response. Um, I, I think that whatever makes sense for the context of what you're trying to do in any given moment is the first rule. Sometimes, if you're trying to um, show instead of tell, you end up going a very long way uh, when you might have just told. And if you can tell it very simply and quickly, which goes along with Scott's as a couple of lines of dialogue and show it, you know, or give them the subtext that then tell, shows them what's really going on. That's mm-hmm. great. Sometimes you can't. I don't think it should be a diehard rule. I've spent a lot of time trying to show and not tell, only to later uh, just go back and tell. And I've also had the experience of showing and not telling, and it puts too much weight on one section of the story uh, instead of where I really want people focused and then sometimes everything looks balanced but as often as you can uh, you should give the audience a seed that is uh, that grows into the image in their head I think you want to one of the things I know you want to do is you want to at least be Forcing, not forcing, but encouraging them to create pictures in their mind. About every four or five words, you want something they can create an image off of because we know that the human mind, when it's reading, creates images uh, about every four or five words. So if you can, you can push it, you know, six and eight, but the longer you go on without giving them something they, they can see, or even if it's in their own mind without engendering that in them, the quicker they lose focus, the quicker they uh, lose their interest in continuing on. So do you think within those four or five words for mm-hmm. them to sort of establish this context or this idea, would it be better to put bigger word, like like a word that, that covers a lot of bases... Or one word that just covers one base. In other words, well, any, in in whatever other words, words, word, it depends how. Or, it, yeah, it depends on what spell is needed to create the uh, magic effect that uh, you're going ooh, after. Yeah, you know, it's, if it's um, if it's ten words and ten words, if it's two words then two. You also have to have a grasp on. You know, and it becomes tricky because you know the image in your head, but knowing what will engender a image that does the job it won't be the same image it can't be the same image they're not psychic but a 
word that creates a picture that does the job that pushes your audience to where you want them to be, whether that's from who's driving the character's point of view driving the scene or whether it's just the way you want them to feel at any given moment, whether you're trying to lull them so you can then freak them out or whether you're freaking mm. them out mm. uh, so you can then heal their wounds, whatever that is. Uh, fewer words, I think, are better if you can paint that picture better. Now, that said, there's all sorts of senses, and a lot of people uh, sub-vocalize in their head. They, they just read and they hear. Uh, the more you read, the less you do that. Most people, some people, that never goes away. So it has to also sound good. So if you can imagine that it's being, even if it's a medium that's not meant to meant to be read out loud, uh, it is being read out loud by a lot of people inside. So it's not exactly out loud, but they're hearing it as if it is in their in their mind. So you just pay attention to that. And the whole the whole reason we see an image every four or five words has more to do with the way our with eye fatigue mm. and you should say so that some of the stuff they've done on this with linguistics and the study of uh, imagery and I forget what you call when you combine the study of language with the study of imagery but it's something um, it might even be symbolism but it's not quite symbolism it's something along those lines you you find out it's it's uh, it's about the audience is going to get tired all the time so oh. it's constantly your job to wake them up. Oh, and you have to consider pace as well. A lot of what you were talking about is simply about pace. The portions of the story that you want to go faster, you're not going to spend a lot of attention on detail. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I think most writers, at, at least as far as novel writing is concerned, uh, or literature is concerned, they have everyone has the sections you know, at the beginning of a chapter where they stop and describe things. But even those, I think, can be pared down. I think the more specific small details, how somebody sits down or how somebody eats, can fill in a lot of the blanks in the reader's minds. So the few details that you get should not necessarily be visual details. Or if it is, maybe just a piece about the clothing that they wear. You don't want to get too specific. Yes. It's going to contradict what they've already seen a lot of times. Mm. In, in my, in my, you into a mental corner in their head. Yes. yes. In, in, in my first book, the, the main character, the way I describe him, I think the only thing I describe him is that he's wearing a wide-notch lapel suit and the lapels almost cover his shoulders. And I thought from that the audience would get, you know, they short and squat. fill in all the colors, yeah. all the details, the textures, you know, the pattern, yeah. so to speak. And that, that would be enough to describe him, especially compared to who he was standing next to. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's uh, just little details like that. And, and you see that in actors, in actors who put on just one small piece and that sure. makes the character. I knew a, an actress who, uh, she wore a mole mm-hmm. and it was a fake mole and, and she, she, well, of course she wore it, but she, she would, it, it was too small to be seen by the audience members. It was just for her. Mm-hmm. Once that mole was on, she was that character. Mm. It was like a trigger right. for her. And, you know, that's just one little small detail, but for her, it filled in just years and years of character history and gaps and motivations and everything like that. So I think those small details, the more specific they are and the smaller they are, will lead to big worlds of characters. You know, and, and I can't think of, like, per, like, perfect examples from either of these two novels, but I can tell you two novels that do it perfectly. The, the few words, giant images, um, The Great Gatsby by Fitzgerald is one of them. The other one is uh, Bright Lights, Big City by Jay McInerney, um, who was compared to Fitzgerald uh, when he brought that book out. And that book, out of the two, is probably the best that I've ever read with saying a, just about a, a, a – painting a mural instead of a picture with a couple mm. of words sometimes. And I remember I remember being wowed again and again. But what's strange about that novel for a lot of people is it's also – it's written in the second person, oh. which is an art form or a, or a way of writing a point of view that I, I wish that people would write more of. Well, that, that's the one any writing professor will always introduce it last. They'll introduce first person, then the uh, third, third person, third person omniscient. They'll, they'll introduce everything. And then the last one, and this thing exists, 
and they'll like write second person. Yeah. <laughs> most, most, yeah. I mean, most. I, I, I mean, God bless them for being teachers, and you know, and for like having classes that people who want to be writers can take. Otherwise, what do you have? You have math and science, which is important if you're a writer too. But, but for the most part, anytime you have a teacher who is telling you don't, you shouldn't take that as gospel. There's, there's just less and less rules all the time. And if anywhere I've tripped up, it's been out of fear because I heard in screenwriting class A or I read in book B, don't do this. And then, you know, you, you get a little older and you go out in the world and you go to see a movie or you pick up a book and someone's done it and it's a big hit. And you realize that professor as well-meaning as they were, was wrong. Yeah. 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 So be careful about... Learn, yeah, learn what you can, but try not to learn anything you shouldn't do. Um, there's no reason to just do it, well, but if you want to do it, you should try it. Well, one thing they 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 have to tell students that on the other on the other hand they have to tell them that because it's impossible to explain exactly you have to know the rules before you can break them which is a universal truth in anything in life I found uh, but that's not very exciting to a new student so I think presenting it as a no don't do this mm-hmm. like right off the bat eventually the theory is they will learn why they shouldn't do that and then how they can I I think that's true for any student that. Unless it's a student who is only able to do it that way. Let's say you have a student who is great writing at writing second person, but they suck at writing first person. And they suck at writing third person. But they really want to write. Well, I think eventually if they keep writing second person and they write it enough, they're going to learn enough about writing that when they go and they tackle first person or third person. I was certainly that way with math. I, I didn't pick up math in school. I wasn't interested in math. Uh, it looked like it looked like a a language from Mars, uh, not not actually from Mars as far as I know, but math. And later, many 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 years later, when I needed math, I I, I learned the parts of math that would allow me to do construction valuations of all things. Uh, and by learning those parts. I then had to like sort of piece math together for myself, and now I can do math. You know, I, I and I don't think I would have ever, ever, ever learned it in the traditional system, even if I had been in school a thousand years. I wasn't going to. I was a non-math student, but going and learning it my way allowed me to pick up those pieces. But that's not everybody all the time. And I, I, I think when you're talking about uh, university, or you're talking about uh, a school of any size, really. You you do have to look at what's good for the group, uh, as well as the individual. But that kind of it's it gets messy. I'm imagining how uh, I'm imagining how a lot of these teachers they're they're giving all this information. They're reading from books. They're they're giving this outdated. Information. They have no choice but to give outdated information because they're not actually actively out there doing anything. So they're giving all of this information to these students. They're programming their brains with all this stuff. And now the students are like so like, eh, they're so like, they're, they're so fearful when they get out of that institution. And they're, they're, they're scared to maybe experiment because they don't, they don't know that it's okay to experiment. You know, so they're, yeah. they're just stuck in this particular set and this mindset coming from someone who's teaching them who hasn't done any of that stuff in who knows how long. That's why it was so kick-ass about Columbia College, which I love so much, was that sometimes Brian Shaw wasn't there to teach an acting class because he was off um, <clears throat> for rehearsals for his play. Or um, he was busy, um, set, you know, at a commercial shoot. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, dude, they're out there doing this stuff, and then they come back and they and then they would report these stories to us, and we go, oh, what's it like out there, you know? And so they're like these these, they were like these uh, willing to be like these scouts, you know, and scouting out the real world, and they come back with it was great with this information, and they're like, whoa, okay, that's what it's like out there. So it was cool to be able to have this mental idea as to how how to connect it. You know, because man, you know how cool would that be if there were a lot of these these uh, classes that 
go, okay, we're teaching this information. Here's how to connect it. <laughs> here's some here's some avenues that you can connect it into. And when you if unless you have something that that's like that, you know, where you feel like they got your back the whole time rather than just go fly, you know. <laughs> sure, sure. And, you know, I think that also depends on it depends on what they're doing on the outside. I I I think it's absolutely a plus that at Columbia College in Chicago, they had teachers working in the field that they were teaching. But at the same time, if the work that they're doing in that field is the same work over and over again, over a long enough length of time, it turns into the same kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of the English teacher saying, never do the second person, you know, or only do the second person after you've mm-hmm. mastered everything else. Because you can actively be in, you can actively be in a rut as much as you what can you also be sitting the... in a classroom mm-hmm. teaching from the same book all of the time. If your experiences yeah. outside are always the same, you come into the classroom and teach them as the only way, you're going to run into trouble. Yeah. For the most part, I didn't see that with most of the most of the teachers that I had at Columbia. Yeah, they're out there exploring. They're getting this information. They're showing us how they're applying it. They're... Um, doing great things and then showing us, look, this is, you, you can do this exact same thing too. And then a lot of times they think of us when they were out there at Steppenwolf or some other place like that, they go, Oh, Oh, what about this guy? You know, he was in my play and you know, he's really good. I can imagine him playing this character. So that was really cool too, because they were trying to plug us into this, uh, uh, this stuff at the, at the Steppenwolf theater. Um, Sheldon set up this audition. There was, it was the, it was the, um, American, it was the American premiere of this UK play called Mojo. And it was about this guy named Johnny Silver. And Johnny Silver is like this young sort of punk, like kind of like punk rock kind of pop kind of kid. But it's like through the whole play, you only see two him two times. And he has one little line at the very end. But he's like, the mo- everybody's talking about him the whole time on stage. His managers, his agents, his everybody who has a piece of him, so to speak, is out here talking about it. You know, the roadies, the freaking mm-hmm. other bandmates. And you're like, oh, my God, this is so interesting. And just to think that Sheldon would think of me as possibly to be this Silver Johnny dude sure. was just such a kick-ass thing, you know? Just to know that, wow, I can I can trust this person's word because they're not, they're not just you know, talk about some outdated thing. Now, what if you started right out of the gate? What if they teach you right out of the gate to start uh, writing from the, the, what, the second person? Well, <laughs> right? I Wouldn't mean, that be so kick-ass? You well, master that first. How cool would that be? Yeah, I mean, that would be cool in the sense that it's not done, and it might inspire you to write in another person. Yeah. But, I mean, if they then said, don't ever write in the first person positive, I think then the per- first person positive becomes the pariah that um, there's no reason to say that the first person is just as you know it's it, it, none of them should be thrown out I think the only real rule and really the only piece of advice that I would give anyone is it's about whatever you can get away with um, and you don't know if you can get away with it until you try it oh and yeah it depends also what you're trying to do well and following like a vision if, well you're always following a vision but sometimes you have very you, you you also sometimes you're concerned about the audience. Sometimes you don't give a shit about the audience. Mm-hmm. It just depends on what you're doing and what the context is. Uh, if you're writing for a particular medium or a particular form and a particular audience, and you're going to need to take them all into consideration. Uh, if, for example, you wouldn't want to show um, a, a a silent movie to the blind. Right? Mm-hmm. But there are people that would do that, and then they would say, well, you know, I'm, I'm following my vision. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, like that's, if that's okay with you, that's okay. It's probably not okay with the, the blind that you invited who paid money if they paid money or paid time. But if, it's an, but if, you're, if you're learning, if you're experimenting, if you're trying to find your voice... If you're trying to weed out the bullshit in the books, and I think they should burn most of the, not burn because we don't burn books because that has bad associations to you know bad people, but we should then burn all of the the um, writers of the uh, the the screenwriting books uh, at the stake. I don't really feel like they we should, but sometimes I do. I I think they overly complicate the issue. I think. What we should do is we should take 
anybody who wants to write scripts, for example, and just put them in a room with a bunch of scripts, and we don't even need a room, we have the internet now, and just say, read a hundred of these, and, you know, tear these apart, uh, and, and then go take in, you know, go take an improv class, and a science class, and, and, and go live a little, but trying to learn how to do art from a set of rules can be damaging, but it can be helpful if you're unable to put borders around your own work, because you can't, I mean, you should always have something that constrains you or it's going to be stream of consciousness forever. And that's great for you, but we've all got a stream of consciousness. We have to keep up with our own. Nobody can come and watch yours all the time. So if you have your own personal algorithm that says, I'm going to drive this close to this edge and that close to that edge and I'm going to work within these borders, amazing things can happen. You can break all sorts of rules within a context. You can break all the rules without a context, but no one's going to give a fuck. If you don't care, that's fine. How do you prefer to make your art? I've got it just depends on what I'm working on. What kind of borders are you setting and what right are you giving that the author of those borders, like, what makes those the borders that are the necessary ones? Well, I'm working in a form that has a very limited amount of time. I'm writing television scripts. We're talking about, if we're talking about a drama, I've got 60 pages to tell my story. That's a big border. You know, when you write, when I was a playwright, I could write really, really long plays if I wanted to, or, or as short as I wanted to, and you could still find a venue. The by restricting my story to 60 pages, it forces me to tell my story in a more succinct, more precise, simpler, no matter how complicated it is. And it is a fun challenge, right? To try to find what are those root golden nuggets of those ideas that I want to bring well, otherwise you're the... all Yeah, otherwise you're always relying on inspiration. Um, and if you're only relying on inspiration and not craft, even if it's your own craft, your own type of craft, then you're going you're gonna to have long periods of time where no matter how excited you were at the beginning, eventually you're going to become so invested in a piece and into your third draft and you're just going to become, I wouldn't say bored with the story, but you're going to want to move on to something else. But if what you're trying to do is something you can measure, you know, if you're saying I can't, I, 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 I can't tell my whole story and still have that really long scene that's really awesome, then you have to go back and find another way to do what the work that that scene is doing in a different way. And the more you do that, it's like working out, right? You've you got to tear What if your What brain. if you're the boss? I am the boss. Well, okay, so you're working within a even, certain format. You know, even if I'm getting paid, I'm still the boss. I can still say, fuck you, and I can walk away. I'm always the boss. Right, right. It might not be great for my career to do that, but I'm always the Pe boss. People are, well, knowing that that possibility exists is just great. Just to know that the, your future self is someone, is, someone is giving you monetary as well as all other kinds of, uh, other, other kinds of value systems, like towards just creating what you want to create, how you want to create it, with the people you want to create it with. I mean, can you imagine, like, the kind of crazy brainstorming sessions that just the three of us would have with, if we were given, like, funding to create, let's say if someone only gave us, like, I don't know, $20,000 to make something, right? I'm sure we could come up with an idea for, for a fairy kick Absolutely. and create that thing. Anyone listening? Yeah. $20,000. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's we'll right. take that. That's right. We will take that and we will make a lot of cool stuff with it. Now imagine, okay, so now now uh, episodes are chopped up into either longer and then like short. So like let's say you only get six episodes and they're like two hours each or whatever. Or maybe they're half an hour and there's only ten episodes. Well, for instance, with Twin Peaks The Return, there was 18 hour-long episodes. Yeah. So the olden days it was like 24 or something, right? Well... Yeah, but you were trying to... You, then each story was much more self-contained than, than is the current trend. So you had 24 separate stories about the same characters, usually within a very strict genre. You had 24 police procedurals. Boom. You know, you're, they were going to so have 24 see, stories in a season. And maybe, maybe if you were lucky, there'd be a little bit of character change or a little arc there, but probably not. 
So how cool would that be is to dial it back to that the days of reminiscence of 24 episodes, but you do half an hour. So they're like, oh, a bite-sized piece, you know, almost leave it on a cliffhanger each time. And that would that would afford for so many even more characters. And um, Well, 42 minutes. I mean, that's, if you have a drama with commercials right there, now we're down to 42. You've mm. already, you know, you've lost, what, 18, 18 minutes. Mm. Um, see, math, I had to think about that for a second. So, And... That's close to what you're talking about. And in a comedy, 22 minutes. A story can be told in whatever, you know, whatever box you have to tell your story, and you can tell a version of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just telling it the, the, the best version of that story in that box. And some boxes are better for other stories, for some stories than others, I should say. Uh, theater was different, though, in a little bit. Um, theater... You have you have a group. You have a group of people. You have an ensemble. So then it becomes about. I was you know I'm thinking about this from a directing standpoint. I mean it becomes about creating an atmosphere, not a not a safe atmosphere in the sense that we talk about it now, but an atmosphere where everyone is safe to be imperfect. Mm-hmm. You know, and yes. and, and, and yes. no matter what that means, and to um, forgive each other their sins. Mm, yeah, uh, and to know that they're the fact that they're human and fallible. Uh, won't be something they're judged on as long as they're, you know, all working together in the pursuit of something uh, singular, which is the the the, fi- the final. No, I don't want to say the final product because you go on and you do many shows, and every show is different because it's live theater. But the play, it's all yeah. about the play, and if it's all about the play, when we're in the early parts of rehearsal and we can experiment, we can. And what we're doing there is that we're experimenting with finding out how to work together. And you do the same thing when you write. When you get an idea, you don't just sit down. Usually, sometimes it's happened, but it's very rare, where you just sit down and you nail it on the first try. <laughs> you know? Cartography, that was, it kind of ruined me for a long time because I wrote it in three days. And it was pretty much the first draft, and it worked. So then for years after, when plays would take months or a play would take a year, I was like, what have I forgotten? I really mm-hmm. hadn't forgotten anything. It was... It was just the right moment for that play to come out that way. But when you sit down and you've got your ideas, you're creating a, a place that's safe for your ideas to flow through you. Uh, I'm ready to talk about procrastination and routines and, and uh, you know, the funny things they do before they sit down. But all of that is part of that process, too. The audience just doesn't get to see that. And you don't have other actors, or you don't have actors, and you don't have... Other people, when you're in that situation at home alone working, to participate. But you have to go through that same process all by yourself. Uh, it's much easier when there's people supporting you. Um, it's much harder when there are people who are doing the, are present but doing the opposite. Um, the best thing about working with other people is they're always going to bring a lot more than you could, no matter how smart you might be, even if you're a genius, okay, they're always going to bring something that you couldn't because it's theirs. Mm -hmm. And that's an advantage. And you should be open to advantages. I I would have had the worst sets in set history, uh, the worst lights in light history if I'd been left at that time because I didn't know anything about art direction at that time or lights at that time and I was just like it's fine it'll be cool because I was focused on one thing so but I did know enough to trust my lighting guy and my you know my set designer and man they made me always look better than I was and and that's kind of what artists can do for each other is they can make what they bring individually greater Oh my God, I'm just getting so filled with inspiration. I've been thinking so much lately about doing, writing a play, getting a play together out here, you know? And, oh my God, I'm thinking maybe it would be awesome for us to brainstorm on a, on a fun play that we could put out here. Sure. There's that space out here, Sun Space. We could put it up there for free. <laughs> it's like 50 seats. <coughs> really? Plus, for we could free. utilize... For, 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 for really for free, free? free? And we could utilize... <laughs> A projection screen too, yeah. so that would be cool too. Uh-huh. Because you know, 
while people are walking through the the, the forest or whatever, no, <laughs> you no, know, no. you got the, it's up there behind them, you know? Oh, God, that could be so fun. Oh, for sure. The sets to be a projection. I mean, dude, that that's awesome. And and you add set pieces, too. Very simple. But, you, but it all becomes a, oh, man, that could be so much fun. And having access to something like that, there's no reason that a theater like like the one you just talked about, shouldn't have a line of people waiting to do shows. Um, and I think I know... Right now it's mostly talking. rock shows right now. Yeah. Uh, I um, haven't been up there yet, but it's 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 in a place called Shadow Hills, and that's where I'm having the Bloody Bobby. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, if you have a screen. space, use it. Use whatever you have, mm-hmm, and start mm-hmm. now. Don't wait until everything is perfect or you have enough money because even if you had enough money, if it's your first time out, you're liable to make mistakes, and you probably don't want them to be big, expensive mistakes. Uh, if that has 500 people watching while you make an ass of yourself, now you might turn out to be, you know, you might come out, you know, a genius with amniotic fluid still on you, but that usually doesn't happen. So it's you should start wherever you are immediately, so you can improve. So by the time opportunities to present your work to larger audiences or to work with people you've always wanted to work with or in a medium that was uh, unavailable to you either geographically or because you uh, you just hadn't worked your way into a position for that opportunity come along you want to be you want to be ready and you want to you sort of want to be a little bit humble I think I think you before you know you you don't want to try c- climbing the largest mountain you can find until you've failed to climb a few small ones, you know? Um, because you're going to learn why you failed, and you can fail at 2,000 feet and mm. live. Yeah. But at 20,000 feet, you may not make it down to the bottom oh, of the Oh, that's mountain. a good way of putting it. There's a Very lot of people who, right out of the gate, were given everything they needed for whatever reason, and you would never hear from them again. And it isn't just because people won't work with them again I mean sometimes they will but the experience was just so terrible that, that oh. whatever kernel was inside of them that that little ember instead of flaring and starting this giant fire like oh, yeah. everyone wanted it to right right gets doused uh, with 300 fire hoses as opposed to a cup of water which would have happened if they tried first on a smaller scale and could have learned and then eventually they would have been this great fire starter, maybe. Uh, and they, they, if that happened to you, you should get up off the stool or the chair or the couch or pull the car over and just start right now. Uh, and, 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 start, and start again, because there's no way that ember went totally out. It's just probably buried under a bunch of self-deprecating crap. Um, I'm covered in it often, and I shovel my way back out. But you have to shovel your way out. No one's perfect. Don't expect to be. What are, what are some tools? What, what do you guys utilize? What do you think are important um, for you in reinvigorating that, that fire going? Do you think it's having uh, cooperative people around you who are very yes-and-minded, who are willing to like just like, okay, let's, let's just keep unpacking it? Um, do you think it's uh, important to listen to a certain kind of music? Like what are some of the things that, that help you with that? Here, maybe if you can answer that. In the meantime, I'm going to get you coffee. Um, well, for for me, the I think the biggest thing isn't necessarily anything I do. Uh, I'm, reading is what reignites me because if I re- and I I read the same books that I read that got me interested in the first place uh, because it reminds me of what I want to do. And I know a lot of artists with their career goals sometimes they they get more focused on what's right in front of them, but the career goal. I think always pushes you to reignite the flames. There are there are certain things that I want. I want a um, I want a bookshelf with all of my books on it, mm-hmm. and I want there sure. to be a lot of books. So that would be one goal for me that would push me forward. Hey, Jen. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. Hi, Hi. I'm Scott. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. These guys, we had them on, uh, they were on K-Chung today, and so we went out for an adventure, and we just got back, and I, and I was like, man, we gotta, we gotta brainstorm, so 
Guess what, Jen? You're on. You're on the podcast here. Thank you. Who you're getting? I think, and and then answer your question. Like you said, music, for example. I mean, yeah, for sure. Uh, I was Scott and I were talking the other night about this, about how I'll even if I think I know how I want an episode to play out from beginning to end, and I can see it in my head. And even if I have a first draft on the page or I just have it outlined, I'll, in my head, I'll go outside, I'll put on some headphones, and I'll play the episode from beginning to end, and I'll listen to different genres of music. And two things about that. One, you have to be careful. You can't assume because you're seeing it in your head to that music that it feels that way. But two, if you like how that feels, then you can... You can sometimes go in and let that music sort of excite you to change a thing back towards something you find exciting. Because you can get stale on yourself, even if the work isn't stale. And there's, it's very, 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 very hard to know, for me, what, where the boring parts are. Uh, you know, uh, because eventually I'm going to be bored with anything that I've read 30 times you know if I've read the same scene 30 times there's probably a nothing wrong whether B or should be thrown out one or the other but not necessarily but listening to music will then push me along uh what else keeps me going a lot of coffee mm, keeps mm-hmm. me going exercise should be keeping me going more than it is but it, you know at times it has been all that's kept me going uh watching other people's work, reading, like especially reading again. Scott, when he said reading was right on, and back to locking, you know, new writers into a room with a bunch of books or a bunch of, but only books, you know, if they're going to be fictionalized, only fiction books, no books and writing books. Um, oh, yeah. And then let them read those later if they want to. I think Scott might disagree with that a little bit. No. And maybe I, I am being too severe. No, but one thing I wanted to add if we talk about this work kind of process, we were also discussing the other night, I was telling him how uh, if I have an entire day to write, for example, uh, the first two hours are extremely productive. And I'm, I'm writing, I'm writing. And then something happens after the two-hour break where anything I write will be generic. There will be nothing of value. I can write kind of placeholders, like during the scene, this thing happens, and that's fine. But I can't really write a book the same way that I did for those two hours. I think for some people, there's a period where it's it's effective, and then that period is gone, and if you want to work on it, then you have to do kind of superficial things. I'll name chapters. Mm-hmm. I'll, uh, I'll, yeah. I'll do some research on, you know, editing software that's out there that I can get, but eventually, I, I don't end up getting all that much done. So for some people, you know, they have to get really smart about how they do it. You know, they're working a job. But they have this thing they want to do, but then they, they kind of defeat themselves because they think they can't do it. They can't find the time to do it. And really, I think maybe you should check for yourself, but for me, I'm only effective a short period. So as long as I have that short period, I should be fine to work. Conversely, I do my best work when I have a lot of time and a lot of momentum. Um, and I'll, I'll work 12, 14 hours a days when I have the opportunity um, I will take a lot of breaks. I will go outside. Uh, if I can pull, unless it's really going well, in which case I do not want to get up, you know, at all. I, 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 I don't even want to get up to use the restroom. I do. Uh, you know, there's, I don't have a jug by the desk that I'm urinating in because the story is going that well. And, but there is one of those dilemmas. What if, you know? <laughs> what if you knew yeah. that if you got up, you would lose your thread? Um, but the breaks are important because they keep you from numbing out. And your eyes your eyes get tired eventually. It's very physically challenging. People think, oh, you sit around in a chair all day. Go ahead and try it, pal. You know? That's what I say. You, you know, <laughs> Everyone's a writer. You know, fuck you, everyone's a writer. You know, that's not true. Um... Everyone is a writer is a meaningless phrase. Um, writer is a phrase that is meaning that you bring to it. If you your qualifications for being a writer are being met, then you're a writer. Now, 
are you a writer on a TV show where you're getting paid for every episode and that's your only definition of what it means to be a writer, then you're only a writer if that's your definition of it. But I I was always... I Actually, I should back up. I wasn't always writing. I was writing. I wanted. I originally wanted, in the first grade, I wanted to, because I went to a very small school, so everybody was one thing. And I wanted to be the kid that drew. I wanted to be the artist, you know, the painter mm. or the, the illustrator, though I don't think I knew the word illustrator in the first grade. And, but Jason Giles was better than I was at that. And Mrs. Engelman noticed that I wrote a a pretty good short story for the first grade and gave me positive encouragement. And I realized that I then could not stop. So you ask yourself, is it all about some long approval-seeking thing? Well, who knows what it's all about down below. But I do know that I always feel like it's exactly what I'm supposed to be doing and that it's I, I crave it if I go a day without doing it uh, because there are like like there are just events that just get in the way and there's got to be a lot of serious events to make that happen and I yeah I think that pretty much covers it whatever it was right uh, right did you, what, was there something else you wanted to say uh, concerning process or um, if you're stuck in a rut or things that you might do to help kind of jumpstart, kickstart it back in shape? Uh, well, well, just to, to add something to what he said, I think the definition of if you're a writer or not mm-hmm. that I heard that I really like is if you call yourself one. If somebody sure. asks what do you do and you say I'm a writer, then you're a writer. Uh, and it's amazing how many people write but wouldn't call themselves a writer because they have oh. this idea of what a writer should be. Oh, yeah. And that's, I, I think that's wrong. So now, when people ask me what I do, I, I tell them I'm a writer. Yeah. I'm t- I and tell them I'm a, a novelist. Writer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a, but yeah. it's still <laughs> not uh, where I would hear that from coming from my mouth and say, yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I would have to be, I would have to get a little more success. So my personal reason of why I would call myself a writer, I, I don't think I'm there yet. But, you know, if you say it, then that's what it is. It's true. And I think there is a difference between... And, faith. Well, yeah, there's faith, yeah. But there's a difference between the, when you hear someone say, oh, yeah, 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 I've got an idea for a screenplay, or I'm, I'm writing a screenplay, mm. or, and, 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 and saying I'm a writer. Because a lot of people that will say I'm writing a screenplay are not going to say I'm a writer. And people who hear that... For example, there's this idea in town that everyone is a writer because Mm. everyone has a screenplay idea. Oh. Well, you know, a lot of those people that have a screenplay idea or even working on it occasionally over the weekend um, don't call themselves writers. They don't consider themselves writers. Mm. Some of them most likely should. I'm sure there's... In fact, you know, you'll come across... When I was working at the agency, you'll come across, um, like, unsolicited submissions that you have to you really you really can't accept but oh. because we don't you don't know them and there's no non-disclosure agreement that's been signed but you'll run into that same person you'll on the outside and this happens all the time Whoa. and and you get to talking and and you won't tell them that oh, you boy. saw their script interesting come in and, and interesting. that no one, no one was able to read it but if it comes up and you and they say, "Hey, I wrote this thing. Would you look at it?" and you read it, a lot of times you're like, "Jesus Christ! Someone should have read this script." And it's just a it's it's a question with no answer. It's like it's like you can't go by, you can't mix a writer up in your mixing bowl. You can't go get the ingredients. So who the hell knows? Yeah, there's no right answer. Right, just your personal one. Mm-hmm. Write write your own answer. Absolutely, you know, write your own. So you life. are the writer. Well, you have to be the star of your own story yeah. at all times, yeah. Yeah. and it's hard to do. And you're not always in your mind. But the fact of the matter is, you are the star of your own story yeah. at all That's times. That's really a great thing to know. And the more you can remember that, for me anyway, the happier I am. That doesn't mean that I am the star of everyone else's story, you know, or at your expense. I mean, if we're competing, 
Yes, at your expense, if possible. But, you know, and vice versa. You should be trying to cut my throat as well um, if we're competing. But it's all... Vice versa. As long as there's a reason for the competition. You know, I don't know if you've ever run into this situation where people are competing with you, but there's nothing to compete for. Oh, I see. You know, I it's see very much mean. like yeah. high school. I've, I've, yeah. I've, run, I've run into that situation, and it's very oh, uncomfortable. Right, right. Because then... Yeah. Then, so you're suddenly yeah. in this game of, uh, of what? sport that you're just like I unaware of. Yeah, how what's I get the here? game? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And suddenly there's this weird invisible rules being made, and you're like, I'm not follow. I'm not following that right now. But mm-hmm. still, someone wants to hold you to them. You're like, I don't know what these. I don't really know what these rules are. Absolutely. Yeah. I just. I just. I just find that needless. Needless competition yeah. is a waste of time. Uh, that's why it feels so much better for me for, for cooperation, just, just growing it, growing it, growing it, and just seeing, like, okay, what are the, all these ideas? What are all these ideas? And going, now, have you ever had the idea of creating a, a screenplay or a play that just really, truly, just really allow yourself to have that one time where you put no boundaries on what it should be or how sculpted it ought to be? Have you ever, like, just gone ahead and just did that? That's how all my, I found all my early plays exactly that way, you know, just... A nugget, just a tiny little image, and just follow it, see where it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, ramble on the page for a while. Sometimes you are writing one thing, and then you just have a stream of consciousness session, and you have another stream of consciousness session, and you keep writing this other thing, and you realize that something you wrote off the cuff that you didn't mean to is perfect. Mm-hmm. And that's really in the building stage, you know. I mean, when you're really trying to find your story, there. Are, when you're trying to find your story, that's when the least amount of restrictions should be on you. When you're trying to find it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have, you know, it's got to be this genre, and you know you want to do this thing, it's very helpful, because then you can find your story on a road that's mapped. The 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 train isn't mapped. Right. But the road is. You're not going to be able to map it unless you first discover an unseen thing, right? And the first draft has to be terrible. Everyone's first draft is god-awful. And this sounds like it's something... And let it be terrible, Yes, it should be terrible. Let it just... Uh, Yeah, the vomit draft. Yeah. Just vomit on the page. (laughs) And then you'll you'll sort it out later. But I I think as simple as that is, and as many people know about that as they do, uh, a lot of people still get stuck up on that. Yeah, right. They'll start writing in their first two paragraphs, oh, this looks terrible, and then they quit. And you can't. You have to realize, okay, this is going to be bad, and I'm going to stick with it. The worst is, well, I've only done one, but I, I published my first novel. I had it to, you know, three rounds of editing. I worked really hard on it. It sounds really good. So I, it comes out. I read it again. You know, I know the story. And then I begin writing the second book. Everything sounds awful. Nothing sounds like a, an English sentence in, in any way. And uh, I think, God, this is awful. And I have to remind myself, you know, that's finished. Yeah. That's yeah. a polished product, and this is not. So you're going through the process again. So. Now, do you find that, uh, do you find yourself walking around the house talking as certain characters to try to get more into their minds or like inhabiting, the, you know, this person's mindset? Maybe they like to crochet a lot. And you're like, oh, what, what kind of music would they listen to? Or, what would they, you know? <laughs> or this person likes to ride their unicycle around. You're like, oh, okay, what would they do? You know, where would they go? I act out all the scenes. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I mean, when I'm by myself, I sit down in different chairs. I say the lines uh, with my horrible accents for the characters that probably don't sound anything like them, even though I know exactly how they sound. Uh, yeah, I have to do that because I have to... Th- that's where the best dialogue comes from. Yeah, and, and that's what he does is great. Uh, literally acting out the what you're writing is, is great. You get to play all the roles. Yeah. Um, and as far as, you know, going around the house and or taking a walk, and listening to the characters, that's so involuntary that the idea, you know, the idea that do you, do you go and do this? It's not really a you go and do. You're so immersed in what you're working on that what you're actually doing is not thinking of anything else. Um, when you're really into a, when I'm really into a piece, it takes over ninety five percent of my higher functioning. I'm, with the exception that if there is something very routine in your life that you have to do, like let's say you have a day job, you can you can still pause the writing and do that job. In my experience, if you've been if you've had that routine for a little while, your brain knows, okay, I'm gonna sort of save this stuff for later. You'll get ideas here and there, but there's a fear that 
writers can't have day jobs that aren't writing because it's going to either strangle their voice or it, they're not going to be focused on their day job. Neither of those are true. They're myths. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, are Most writers are smart people who can organize a sentence. And if you're smart enough to write, you're likely smart enough to do a lot of things. Your passion is in writing. Uh, so I don't think anyone should feel they have to they have to starve to be a writer until they're successful. And I don't think anyone should think I can't hire that guy to do this other job or hire this gal to do this other job because she's a writer because that makes no sense either. That said, if you have the luxury of time, it is a beautiful thing because you can then improve as well as finish. You have time to learn from your own successes, and I don't mean the successes of your finished product, but the successes of that day or that minute or that paragraph or the failures. Uh, Um, When you are diving back into your into the story that you're writing, um, like to help prepare yourself for that, do you end up then finding yourself reading other other novels out there by other writers to try to like, okay, let's try to drum up some inspiration here. Maybe this one crime reminds you of a completely different kind of crime that could happen. You're like, ah, or you know, or a solution to something. Um, well, I've also just read all of the like famous crimes in mm-hmm. books, so I, I I haven't read all the books, but yeah. You try and combine them, or you have some aspect, some element of one that you really like. Um, you know, either playing with the time something happened, or uh, yeah, you, you you can take elements from those and, and put them into your own. But when I'm diving back in, the main thing I do, yeah, is I, I think of the crime and all of its mechanics. Where is everybody at every point? What's their motivation? Why are they doing it? And then once I have that and I have the layout of the crime, um, then it's really just filling in blanks more than anything. It's, it's kind of like a form, a long form. With the first book, uh, the biggest mistake I made was the murder happens in the seventh chapter. And everyone says, you know, first chapter's best, then second, then third, and then you're screwed because everyone who reads this, they're looking for one thing. They want that murder. Mm-hmm. Give me that murder, baby. Yeah. So... Uh, they, if they read a book and it happens in the seventh chapter, they're really disappointed. But what I had done, I tried to give my character an arc, and this is one of those rules that you break and you don't know why you're breaking it, and then after you learn why you broke it and, and how it was a mistake and how you mm. could do it better. Mm. Uh, I tried to give him a character arc which took up time in the opening chapters, oh. and then the murder happened late. Now I realize I will never give any of my detectives a character arc again. If anything, they'll have a protracted character arc over several novels, and they'll finally mm-hmm. get somewhere, and little changes will happen to oh, them. Cool. But within one book, they barely change at all. And that's one of those rules that I should have known how to break before I broke it. Um, are you going to include any uh, monsters or paranormalities in any of your books? It's never interested me. I, I like some horror films that have it, but... Uh, if anything, it would just be the suggestion. Occasionally you read one where they think, oh, it must have been ghosts because nothing else can explain it. But of course they're going to explain it. If people found out at the end it was ghosts, they would they would, they would burn your books probably and throw them in the fire. Yeah. <laughs> Which we do not condone. No, right. We don't we, condone it. Yeah. All right. We're down to uh, four minutes. Anything special you'd like to tell these people before we get out of here? Before we say goodbye to all of you at home viewers. Well, I like Jamie Lee's idea about the 20 grand. Yeah, uh, absolutely. If, if send someone money. wants to send it. Uh, yeah. please. 20 grand uh, if you uh-huh. got it. We're, uh, we're, we've been kidnapped. Uh, no. Um, you, I Just back to what I said before, there's no one way uh, to, to make something work. So be careful of following advice where anyone says it has to. Be cognizant of those who have gone down that path before and know the where the treacherous pitfalls might lie.
And uh, not to be a total shill, but uh, my book, Good Night Irene, you can get it on Amazon, author James Scott Burnside. And look out next year, around July, The Opening Night Murders. It's going to be the kind of sequel, and uh, it's going to be even better. Oh, that's good you said that. And also, where can they find, uh, do you have an Instagram or... Uh, I have a Twitter, Twitter Mystery Writer. It's James S. Burnside at Mystery Writer. And also uh, Facebook uh, Mystery Writer. You can find me there. Uh, and I don't post as much as I should. I'm still getting into this. But uh, if you come contact me, if you like my book, if you hate my book, contact me and tell me why. I'd love to hear it. See that, folks? An open invitation. Read it. Read it while it's hot. Kurt, this was lots of fun. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much. See ya.